Hello, and thank you for listening to episode 7 of 60 Minutes With. I'm Dave, and I'm back with the first interview show of 2015, uh, and what a great show it is, if I may say so myself. Uh, most people know me as a big KISS fan, so there is no surprise at how excited uh, I've been to get the opportunity to chat with this guy that you're about to listen to. Uh, what I'd like to say as well, because this isn't a KISS-specific podcast, although you wouldn't think so some of the times that I go on about the band, um, I thought I'd take this opportunity to, to find out more about the man himself. So obviously we're going to chat about um, KISS, the book that he's got coming out. But let's let's learn a little bit about the guy, what happened before he was with KISS and what happened afterwards and get up to date with what he's doing now. So please sit back, get comfortable uh, and get ready to spend 60 minutes or so with me and J.R. Smalling. Right, JR, thank you so much for joining me tonight. Um, it's I've been looking forward to this one so much. The pleasure is all mine, as I have been looking forward to it as well. Oh, lovely. I should also thank you as well, because my book, Out on the Streets, my autographed copy of it, plopped through the letterbox just a few days ago, so thank you so much as well. I've got, oh, I'm maybe a third of the way through at the moment and loving it. Oh, great. That's That's good to hear, man. Yeah. The uh, the reviews have been uh, have been stellar, and um, we're very uh, we're very uh, pleased by all of that. You know, we wrote this for the fans uh, who have been uh, asking us for decades. You know, all the varied questions and all, and uh, we figured we'd we'd get all of that stuff out of the way in one fell swoop, and 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 that's where we are. No, oh, I'm so glad you did because this you know these are stories that I mean there's there's a lot of kiss books out there, but this one's this one's got the totally different angle from it coming from you guys, people that, that were there right from the beginning and, you know, in the thick of it, because it's, mm-hmm. it is, it's so good to hear stories like that. Absolutely. Well, I'm, I'm glad that we're able to, uh, to uh, shed some light on some of the things that, uh, that people want to know about those early days, for sure, because uh, we were right in the thick of it, so to speak. <laughs> Before we get to that, let's have a little chat about you, your early days. Um, can you tell the listeners where you grew up? And a little bit about, you know, what, what were you listening to when you were growing up, too? <laughs> well, <clears throat> excuse me, being an old guy, <laughs> uh, I was fortunate in that uh, I was introduced to live music by some of the, the best artists of the time in the, uh, in the mid and late 50s by uh, my sister and my, uh, my older cousins. Um, some may be familiar with uh, Alan Freed who was a pioneer, early pioneer here in the States of, uh, of uh, rock or uh, I guess at the time it was called rock and roll music and, uh, and soul music. He was a DJ and a concert promoter. And um, he had uh, the Alan Freed Review. Uh, there was also something called the Motown Review. And what those were basically was Motown Review was uh, they would put all of the acts that were on the Motown label, Temptations, Four Tops, Supremes, um, Little Anthony and the Imper- I mean, just every group uh, of that type that was uh, that was uh, on the charts would uh, would put on a show uh, on the same day, same venue, uh, for one low, low price. And uh, I, I was fortunate enough to attend uh, some of those uh, some of those gigs. Like I say, back in the late '50s, and uh, once I, I attended my first live show and saw all of the the hysteria that was going on and all the the, the very cool uh, things that were happening in and around those events, man, I, I was pretty much hooked. Um, 
fast forwarding a few years to my uh my latter years in high school i got uh i got turned on to uh to rock music um by first hearing uh, uh cream and Jimi hendrix and uh i started playing drums uh, immediately upon uh, upon hearing that stuff and uh <clears throat> played with a bunch of bands in 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 brooklyn um and um got to perform and once I actually sat behind a drum kit on stage and got paid for it and, and got to see the reaction of the fans' faces, then well, I was hooked even even more. <laughs> you know, so so it was uh, I, I was immersed in music uh, from a very early age. Fortunately, so what got you hooked on drums and not guitar? Because usually people like gravitate towards the guitar, don't they? Uh, yeah, I believe so. But you know, like I say, the very first. Uh, uh, a hard rock album, if you would, a classic rock album that I heard was uh, was uh, Fresh Cream, and um, I was very much uh, maybe it's because of the, the the home that I first heard it in. The guy was a drummer, and he had a set of drums and not a guitar. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so <laughs> um, you know, we fooled around. We played along with the tracks. Um, you know, at uh, at, at that time. And then from there, we uh, we started jamming with some uh, some guitar players and bass players and keyboard players, and you know I just I just stuck with with what I knew. I'm a, I'm a very rhythmical guy, not so uh, not so uh, high high on the, uh, the the melody, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And um, the drums just uh, just fell in naturally, and of course uh, Ginger Baker's style, um, not being as flamboyant and flashy as as a mitch mitchell uh who was a very uh fast speedy type drummer ginger baker's style uh was much easier to uh to emulate and imitate um you know as as a fledgling drummer so that was where i started and like i say when i when i uh then heard uh, Jimi hendrix and and you know mitch mitchell and subsequent drummers from there I was able to, uh, you know, to tweak my style a bit and and, and really uh, improve my chops, so to speak. But <laughs> Ginger Baker for me was was the first guy, and uh, and I loved it from the minute I heard it. You know, speaking of drummers, one of the uh, the drummers that went on to uh, to achieve some some fame and is now a rock and roll hall of fame inductee, as a matter of fact, was a rival drummer of mine in. Uh, in uh, in Brooklyn, his band played with uh, with my band. Um, actually, they rehearsed in in my parents' home. We all rehearsed together. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with a group uh, from the '70s called Dust. Yes. U.S.T. Yeah. yeah, yeah, Dust. Well, the drummer for that band uh, was was a gentleman, a, a great drummer, a great drummer by the name of Mark Bell, and um, he played with Dust. They recorded two albums together. And um, they were one of the, the first uh, U.S. power trios. And um, when uh, uh, when Dust broke up, uh, Mark went on to play for a bunch of other groups, uh, Richard Hell and the Voidoids being one of them. But uh, he found his niche when he uh, met uh, uh, um, Joey Ramone. And he changed his name, and he's now the Marky Ramone from the Ramones <laughs> that everybody that everybody knows. So uh, there's a lot of history came out of my parents' house, actually. <laughs> yeah. The, uh, the bass player for Dust 
uh, was a gentleman named Kenny Aronson, great bass player. And Kenny went on to play with uh, with a lot of bands. He played with the New York Dolls in their second incarnation. He played with Foghat for a while. He played with Billy Idol. He played with Billy Squire, Bob Dylan, uh, just a bunch of people. And I think that's a testament to his uh, musical abilities. And I guess maybe uh, one of the most important people in that band, certainly for me and my, you know, becoming involved with Kiss in the first place, was the guitar player, a gentleman by the name of Richie Wise. Uh, Richie and his partner, who was the manager of Dust, Kenny Kerner, they produced uh, the Kiss album, the first Kiss album, and they produced Hotter Than Hell. Mm-hmm. So uh, with that... Um, after after I uh, uh, left my band, my band, the band that I was playing with, um, after high school, we we moved upstate New York and we took a home up there and we proceeded to get our chops together to present ourselves to a record company. And unfortunately, the home that we were renting um, burned down in a fire. It was it was a very tragic scene. But um, in an effort to uh, earn enough money to, uh, to buy a new set of drums while staying in the business, I started working for our rival group, Dust, <laughs> and I actually became uh, Mark Ramone's uh, first drum roadie. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, after that, uh, and, and while Mark, as I say, went on to play with Richard Hell and the Voidoids and a bunch of other bands, I went on to work with groups like like. Uh, the Dutch group Focus. I worked with uh, with an English uh, gentleman uh, by the name of Dave Mason, uh, formerly of Traffic. And uh, I worked also with an English group called uh, Tranquility, a great, great band, three guitars, bass, drums, and keyboards. And they were just phenomenal. We did gigs on, on their tours. We did gigs with uh, David Bowie. We did gigs with Yes. Uh, we did gigs with Jake Isles Band. I mean, it was really, really a great, great time. And um, in 1973, late 1973, after coming off the road on a tour with uh, with uh, with uh, a Focus, uh, I got a call from Richie Wise, and he told me, he said, "Listen, I've just uh, recorded an album, just produced an album with this new band. They're going to be great." Very visual band, a lot of special effects, and, uh, and they need a guy with your experience to help them get the show on the road each and every night. I said, great. You know, I wasn't really thrilled. I'd, I'd just come off with Jay Giles, who was near the top of, of, of the charts at that point in time. And I said, yeah, the group, he said, the group is Kiss, uh, called Kiss, and they're doing a showcase uh, at the Fillmore East uh, on January uh, 8th, I believe it was. You know, you should come down and check them out. And if you like them, they like you. You know, you can you can jump on board. So I uh, kind of reluctantly almost dragged myself <laughs> down there. And um, like most uh, first-time uh, Kiss uh, fans, uh, I was knocked out. I mean, the show was just phenomenal, like nothing I'd ever seen. You know, bombs, of course, and fog, and the drums elevating in the air, this guy spitting blood, this guy spewing flames and all, and... <laughs> I was like, I don't know what this is, but uh, yeah, I, I can do this. You know, it was very exciting to me to think that I could be a part of uh, of helping uh, them to get their uh, their show on the road. So I met with uh, met with their manager, Bill O'Corn, briefly after the show, and had a follow up uh, interview and meeting uh, the next week. And uh, 
the rest, as they say, is history. <laughs> <laughs> and you mentioned you mentioned the bombs there when you saw them. Of course, back then, like smoke bombs and pyro, the mm-hmm. the health and safety issues were not quite as strict as they are nowadays, were are they? No, not not at all, not at all. And of course, you know, being as it was their very early incarnation, um, the the flash pods, as they were, were nothing of the size and impact that they came to be under the um, the uh, squire, if you will, of, of the original Kiss crew. Myself, uh, Peter uh, Orokinto, who is affectionately known to most as Moose. Um, Mick Campisi, who was uh, Peter Chris's drum drum, drum roadie, and uh, Rick Monroe, who was uh, our lighting uh, lighting director, and the four of us, uh, uh, you know, were were the crew in the early days. And uh, of course, the crew grew from there. But I'm very proud to say that uh, you know, this the show that you see today, the Kiss show that you see today, is for all intents and purposes the exact same show as uh, we put on yeah. you know, for, 40 years ago. Of course, it's bigger and it's better now. They've got infinitely more money and a much larger stage set and much more guys on the crew. But, you know, the drums still elevate. The gene still spits fire. It still drools blood. Um, the flash pods are nothing like they used to be because of some of those safety issues. You know, there were some unfortunate tragedies that happened revolving around... Uh, open pyrotechnics on, on the stage, uh, not with KISS. Um, I'm, I'm happy to say that no one ever got injured uh, during our tenure with the original band. And um, like I say, we, we, we developed the show from the, the uh, kind of rudimentary uh, designs that they could afford and had at the time to the kind of bombastic, loud, you know, building-shaking explosions that we <laughs> delivered and... and uh, the, the flames, the columns of flames, uh, you know, shooting up from the stage, as it were. Uh, so uh, we're very, very proud of, of, of what we did during our time with the band. And, of course, one thing they've still got as well is the iconic intro. You know, you wanted the best, you got the best. Absolutely. Um, and, and, of course, you're a major part of that coming to be. Could you tell the listeners of uh, the, the story of how, <laughs> the, how that intro sort of became to be? <laughs> it's an interesting story. It's it's a very interesting story. Uh, uh, we actually uh, did a lot of shows with uh, with Blue Oyster Cult. Actually, let me back up. Um, before I came along, the group had done uh, uh, some shows uh, on their own in some small clubs. And even when I did come on board, uh, the intro was performed by uh, their road manager and really their guru, and a gentleman who was pretty much acknowledged as being the fifth member of KISS, his name was Sean Delaney. And Sean was the guy that, uh, behind the scenes, helped them to develop their makeup into what it became. He, he dressed them all in black with the leathers and the platforms. He, he gave them their iconic uh, uh, choreography that they still use on stage today in songs like Deuce and, and, and other songs. Uh, he was really the guy that, that helped them to pull together uh, some individual ideas that they had floating around their heads, and he helped them polish it to, to make them make those ideas become what what everyone is known to you know uh, to to love. But uh, his intro 
um, was very simply something that said, uh, okay, whatever city it is, you know, um, if you're ready to rock, then put your two lips together and kiss. <laughs> and it was nice, but it, it was nowhere near as gnarly <laughs> as the, uh, the, 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 the bombast and, 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 and what was about to be unleashed on the unsuspecting <laughs> audience, you know what I mean? Oh yeah. And uh, and and we had uh, we had done a bunch of gigs early on with Blue Oyster Cult, who were very popular at the time. They had a couple of hit songs. And the funny thing is, even though phys- small in stature, I mean those guys were probably the tallest guy in the band was maybe five eight. But uh, <laughs> and 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 some of us, and certainly Gene. And Ace and their platforms, they were almost a foot taller than these guys standing <laughs> side by side. But their intro uh, was, all right, you dogs, on your feet or on your knees, blue oyster cult, you know. And it was it was a monstrous intro. It really uh, kicked the audience in, in the ass and, and really set the stage for their show. And after uh, after witnessing the difference in their intro, in our intro uh, for a while, you know, I started to think that certainly we could do better, you know, and uh, I started playing around with, with some ideas, and it really took me a few months uh, to uh, to come up with, uh, with the intro that everyone knows, but um, later on in 74, the second album came out, Hotter Than Hell, and of course everything was, you know, on that theme, hotter than hell, heat, you know, flash pods, bombs, explosions, blowing flames. And I started to play around with that particular theme. Uh, um, right around that same time, uh, there was a, a television commercial for uh, Toyota. Um, and the jingle that accompanied that commercial uh, was a catchy phrase. It went, you asked for it, you got it, Toyota. <laughs> so uh, I was sitting in a hotel one night um, after the show, and the commercial came on, and it was kind of catchy. I said, wow, you asked for it, you got it, you know, hot, heat, hotter, the, you know. Yeah. And I, I played around with it and, you know, tried a couple of different uh, uh, variations um, and uh, finally got down to uh, uh, what... Uh, is heard on the first Alive album, of which my voice is the first voice that's heard, and it was You Wanted the Best and You Got It, the hottest band in the land, Kiss. Uh, and they've they've used either that intro or a form of that intro, effectively only changing a couple of words uh, for the last 40 years. I think now it's uh, You Wanted the Best and You Got the Best, the hottest band in the world, Kiss. Yeah. But, um, you know, when I made that intro, they hadn't yet conquered the world <laughs> <laughs> and they, had, they hadn't left the, the, you know, North America. So in my mind, you know, hottest band in the land, it kind of rhymed a little bit. It made sense. Um, and, um, and, and, and that's why I said it the way that I said it. By the time Alive 2 came out, yeah, you know, they had toured Europe and they had uh, toured Japan and you know, they really were the hottest band in the land, and they uh, they, uh, they they elected to change it enough to reflect that. But certainly, I'm proud that the essence of uh, the intro that they've used for the past for the past forty years 
uh, was my creation. And um, it, it pleases me. You know, you'll never, you'll never believe how many people come up to me, you know, say, JR, oh, man, thank you so much. That intro, that really kicked it off. You know, when I heard that um, on a live, followed by the music, I've been a Kiss fan ever since. And, you know, it's, it, it's, it's a real great thing to be a part of, of so many people's lives. So, you know, to, to the fans who, who they share that, uh, that reaction, I, I, I do thank them very much. Oh, that's fantastic! You know, because I've been, I've been lucky enough to see Kiss live what, 26 times now, and mm-hmm. every time that intro said goosebumps appear every single, <laughs> single time, and it must be incredible for you, you know, to look back on this that you're sort of enshrined within this huge part of musical history, and will forever be associated with it like that because that intro alone is just like you say, it's such a kick-ass start to a concert. It's incredible. Uh, absolutely, and and you know. It uh, it was a great thing because the first night that I actually settled on the intro as it came to be known, uh, I did the intro always from uh, stage right, wings, you know, from, from Gene's side of the stage, out of the view of the audience. And, of course, the band walks on stage in almost pitch darkness. And um, they plug in and they make sure they're in tune and then they all kind of look over to the announcer who was me and say give that nod like okay we're ready you know mm-hmm. and that first night I, I ripped it up and I got this look Paul gave me this look like you know the band got almost excited as excited as the audience did when they heard it for the first time <laughs> you know and this kind of smile went on his face and they, they lit into Deuce and um, the lights went up and then seeing the audience's reaction to the intro and the bombs and these four maniacs in makeup on stage running around <laughs> together, creating this kind of chaos. It, it, it was really very gratifying every, each and every night. Oh, great, yeah. great thing, great thing, man. Yeah, yeah. What was it like back then in New York in the early 70s? I know because, I mean, speaking as somebody from the UK, America's like a different world anyway. But when you go back into a different era like the early 70s as well, can you give the listeners some sort of flavor of what New York was like back then? Well, yeah, New York um, in in the in the early '70s, it was really a, a a very very strange scene. It was it was a very gritty type uh, type surroundings. You know, the city was nowhere near as uh, I guess genteel, if I could use that <laughs> word. It was it was really it, it, it was a gritty kind of gray place. Uh, crime was was pretty rampant. Uh, drugs were pretty rampant. Um, but also, uh, the glam rock scene was pretty rampant, you know, uh, groups like, like the New York Dolls, for example, one of the first bands to, to go all out with, uh, with, with makeup and, and glitter and, 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 and platform shoes and just outrageous looking bands, you know, uh, Blondie, um, was, was forming at the time. The Talking Heads were, were just coming out. The music scene was very, very, uh, was very uh, uh, much live at the time, but it was the bands were nowhere near the uh, the success. They, they they didn't have the success of uh, of bands uh, that preceded them. You know, bands like like the Young Rascals, for example, was a totally different kind of group. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it it was a different time, but but um, it was it was the youth. And the and, and and the early stages of what would 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 come to be known as as glam and uh, glam rock and punk rock, 
you know, that spawned groups like uh, 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 like the Ramones that I mentioned. Um, you know, Steely Dan, while they weren't glam or punk, great band that, uh, that that started in New York at the same time, around the same time. And um, it was just a very, very vibrant scene. Um, a lot of clubs, um, you know, I mentioned before Hendrix and Cream and, and the like. You know, uh, the Fillmore East was was very much happening place. Not so much in the late 70s. In the 70s, they had closed by that time. But late 60s, uh, the Fillmore East had every band that you wanted to see, you know, at a very cheap rate, $3.50. Wow. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, you know, I was fortunate in that one of my uh, good friends and another musician uh, was a stagehand at the Fillmore East. Uh, and as such, I was able to sneak in the back door with him, and I got to see everybody from Hendrix to Cream to Deep Purple to Zeppelin to, I mean, you name it, literally you name it. If I wanted to see them, and I did want to see most of the bands, I, 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 I did get to see them. I remember seeing uh, Jimi Hendrix in a club, a small club, probably 150-seat club called the Cafe Wa down in the village and and it was so much of a club that there were the little you know uh, round club type tables that we all know and all of these little clubs and i was actually sitting right literally underneath jimmy hendrix i could have reached out and touched him if i wanted to <laughs> and he's playing and he's wailing and his sweat is flying all over the place <laughs> you know but uh, it was really you know it, w it was really a, a a great great time from from the late '60s, right, uh, right up to and 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 after, uh, you know, when Kiss formed in in '73 and '74, and, and moving forward from there, great, great, great times. What was your favorite gig from back then? Um, meaning what? That the favorite gig that I witnessed, or the yeah, yeah, gig yeah, the favorite one that you went to, you know, as as somebody in the audience. Um, well, I mean, like I say, there's. You can't beat being close enough uh, to Hendrix to, to feel the heat coming off of his body. I must admit that uh, seeing Zeppelin on their first U.S. tour was was phenomenal. Uh, being a drummer, John Bonham w was a, an immediate. Uh, uh, I idolized him immediately. You know, um, I was fortunate enough to see uh, Jeff Beck group with uh, Rod Stewart on, on lead vocals and, and Ronnie Wood when he was still playing bass. Uh, they as well were phenomenal. Um, I think you can feel the theme there. You know, my particular click, if you would, uh, were very much into the English uh, rock sound. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, Kinks and, 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 and the like. Um, as I mentioned, Deep Purple and even, even you know, some latter groups, Emerson, Lake and Palmer, Yes, um, you name it, you name it. Any anything that was uh, you know musically challenging to play was was where the group of friends that I came from. That's what we gravitated towards, and um, we were not let down. We we knew that if we were going to go see a, see an English band, um, more than likely we were going to get blown away. I mean, Jethro Tull, for example, groups like that were just phenomenal. There's certainly there's nowhere near the great number of, of tremendous bands that they have out the, that we had then available to be seen on a weekly basis, you know, uh, for the for the prices uh, that we got to see them for. So it was uh, it was really wonderful. It was a really wonderful time. Oh yeah, they were. 
definitely golden days, weren't they? You know, for the, absolutely. You say for the amount of bands and the quality of the bands, and add to that, you know, the price of the tickets as well. That's just a mixture made in heaven, right there. For sure, for sure, yeah, yeah. So you see Kiss and you see them for the first time, and you're blown away by them. What process happened then from you seeing them for you working with them? Well, the. Uh... I had been introduced to them, like I said, by uh, by their producers, uh, Kenny Kerner and Richie Wise. So being a fledgling band, having never performed uh, together anywhere as a band, they pretty much uh, were new to the business. And um, like I said, I had been out on the road with major acts for uh, a couple of years before them. So when my name was mentioned and, and who I had worked with and the experience that I had was was put on the table they were more than anxious to have me on board. Um, and it was a relatively easy process. I met with with Bill O'Coin, and we discussed it all. I, I had been road managing bands. There was a, uh, a rehearsal studio in New York at the time called Baggies. And Baggies was the place where um, not only American groups, but in particular, Groups uh, coming over from Europe to do their their American tours, they would they would put it all together in baggies as the first place in the states that they would rehearse and get together to uh, to uh, to tour. And uh, as such, um, you know, I became one of the go-to guys that worked out of baggies because a lot of the road managers at the time, you got to realize, this was the beginning uh, of of uh, that particular rock invasion of course the beatles had their british invasion you know 10 years earlier but it was a totally different animal you know the the, the beatles were were uh, uh, at the time you know very squeaky clean kind of thing and it was it was totally different but you know with the hard rock bands coming over the names that i mentioned um a lot of the uh the groups themselves and a lot of the tour managers had never uh toured the states before and they uh they uh, hired me, uh, amongst a couple of other individuals uh, that worked out of baggage, but they, they hired me, us, to be their, uh, their, their shepherds, so to speak, and to, uh, you know, to take them through these, uh, these gigs in the States uh, for the first time, get their feet wet, and, and show them how things worked over here. Um, and believe me, it was it was uh, totally different than how things were going in in Europe. You know, <laughs> with, with 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 you know seriously with union crews, and uh, you know all of the uh, the restrictions that went uh, around that. Um, plus, just I mean, this, things as simply as 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 navigating around the country, you know, and 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 just knowing the country like with like the back of my hand, as the expression goes. There wasn't, there were no, uh, you know, uh, uh, satellite navigation systems, <laughs> and you know, all, all of that good stuff. So, you know, we became, uh, we became very important to those groups, and 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 giving them a certain amount of comfort, knowing that uh, you know they weren't on their own in this in this foreign country. You know, so um, Kiss uh, realized uh, uh, the the experience that I had at that level. And aspiring to get to those levels themselves, it was only natural that they would, you know, seek out someone with with my experience to to help them do that. And uh, and that's uh, that's where we were. 
It's a good job you did know the country like the back of your hand, because I know from reading the book, uh, and I was amazed I didn't know about this, with uh, some of the concerts that were cancelled, and you would drive from one place hundreds oh, yeah. and hundreds of miles only to find it was cancelled, to Absolutely. travel, you know, like 700 and odd miles back the other way. That's incredible. Yeah, it was, it was very frustrating. It was very, very frustrating. And, you know, we called it the dartboard tour. <laughs> because it's it seemed as if the booking agents just put a map of the U.S. up on the wall and just threw darts at it and decided that that's where we were going to play. But um, you know you have to remember that you know no band uh, climbed the ladders of success ever as quickly as Kiss did without a hit record. Yeah. You know in those days you had to have a hit record if you wanted to uh to be a headline act or even a special guest act um uh, and 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 even to to get on a tour as an opening act usually you had to have a record that a record station would play to give you any kind of value as an opening act to the headliner or to the promoter give them a reason why to put you on on the show mm-hmm. um kiss didn't have that really until very later on, uh, with uh, with uh, Detroit Rock City, to some extent, uh, and of course after that came Beth and and you know rock and roll all night party every day that kind of stuff. Yeah. But uh, what what made Kiss the success that they became so quickly was their reputation of delivering a kick ass show, and um, that's really. Uh, you know, the word of mouth around that, you couldn't beat it. It was the best publicity possible. And people just, uh, people just, uh, uh, you know, did you see this band? Oh, I saw this band, you know, last week. It was crazy. The drums went up in the air and this guy's blowing. <laughs> oh, come on. You're kidding me. Yeah, nah, nah, man, come on. You know, so it wasn't unusual for us during those first couple of years to play a city like uh, Detroit, for example. Detroit kind of embraced Kiss. Uh, you know, as their own band, even though the band was from New York, Detroit became our second home because we played Detroit in the first year, maybe, God, I, I've never counted it, but I would say we played Detroit at least four or five times in separate, uh, you know, dates. Uh, and, and and that is unheard of, you know. So uh, we'd go, we went in the first time and we were uh, the opening act for, whomever, I think it might have been Blue Oyster Cult, and, you know, it, it went really well, and then we came back, and we were special guests for somebody else, and, you know, before too long, we were headlining in, in Michigan Palace, which was, you know, the, it was kind of like the Fillmore East uh, type theater um, of, uh, of Detroit, and we headlined that at 2,500 seat capacity, 3,000 seat capacity, and before long, we were special guesting for a major acts in, in Cobo Hall that was a, a ten or 12,000-seat venue. And uh, shortly after that, which is where the Detroit or a lot of the, uh, the songs for uh, the Alive album were, were recorded, uh, we headlined uh, in Cobo Hall. So it was, it was uh, like, like you know, climbing a ladder or climbing up a set of stairs. Every time we would return to a city, um, we returned in, in, in a bigger and better venue, you know what I mean? So it was always exciting to the, us and it was always exciting to the, to the fans to be able to see the band 
as as they grew from the act that they first saw to the headliners that they became so quickly. That's it, isn't it? Though, with you being constantly on the road like that, as well as it being, you know, a lot of pressure on the crew, it's like damned hard work for you, or constantly too. Oh, for sure, for sure. I mean, we did um, over 125 shows. I'm not sure of the exact number, but we did over 125 shows the first year alone. <sighs> you know what I mean? So that's that's a show uh, every three days, and then when you add in the fact that. Sometimes we had to drive almost two days to get to a show. I mean, we were, we were, and I say we because the the crew was really as almost as much a part of the show as the band was. You know, if you've ever seen a Kiss show, any of any of your listeners have ever seen the Kiss show, uh, they'll know that you know the uh, the flash pods go off and sync perfectly um, in in whatever songs each and every night. The fog pours on the stage on cue each and every night. Uh, um, you know, everything that happens, we, we liken ourselves to be like a, uh, like a traveling Broadway show yeah. put, put to rock music in that we, 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 we wore so many hats. We were special effects engineers. We were prop masters. Um, of course, we were roadies. We were truck drivers. We administered to the costumes. We were carpenters. We were mechanics fixing the... the, the drum machine as it broke down each and every night seemingly you know uh so so yeah it, it, it was it was an amazing it was an amazing time and we dedicated ourselves to that um you know as much for for the group and the fans you know wanting to deliver the show that they expected but out of pride for ourselves you know knowing that something at this uh, level had never been done before and you know, accepting the task to do it each and every night, and uh, you know, fortunately for the band, and fortunately for the fans and us, you know, we succeeded at that. So it was it was a very gratifying time. Oh, I'm sure it was. I'm sure it was. And what did yep. you do on the few occasions that you got some time off? What did you guys do to relax? Um, we bought new gear. <laughs> we built new stages. Um, we fixed the gear. <laughs> Um, we accompanied the band in the in the studio because we were they were recording. You know the the truth of the matter is that if we weren't um, on the road getting to a gig or if we weren't at a gig, we were in the studio. Yeah. You know, so there was really no downtime per se, especially in that first year, year and a half. You know, there were no two week vacations or anything like that. We had to we had to to build on the momentum that that had been developed up to that point in time which is why you know you'll see so many of of those uh, types of crisscrossing the, the the continent kind of kind of gigs um you know the band opened up for anybody that would have them and uh you know with that the band opened up with with everybody from from like i say Dr. John uh to uh, Billy Preston, for example. I mean, how 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 <laughs> how different is that? Blue Oyster called Black Oak, Arkansas, which was a southern kind of rock band. Um, you know, so it was it was really very very crazy. Argent, an English band. Savoy Brown, another English band. You know, any group that would have us, we played uh, played with because we knew that once the audience saw the show. They became Kiss fans, yeah. and uh, and that was the truth. 
that was the truth. Of course, this led, didn't it, to some of the headline acts not being too enamoured with <laughs> with Kiss because they they blew them off the stage. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. And we talk about that in the book. And one of the classiest guys that we ever worked with, probably the classiest guy that we worked with, was uh, was Ozzy. Uh, we opened up for Black Sabbath uh, a couple of shows. Uh, and I believe it was the second night of what was to have been a tour um, um, Kiss did their thing and you know as an opening act we only had maybe 30-35 minutes but um, as would happen first time uh, viewers of Kiss when, when the band left the stage the audience was whipped up into such a frenzy that they would spend you know 15-20 minutes just you know chanting kiss 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 <laughs> trying to get them back out for an encore or whatever and of course, the headline acts didn't like that because, uh, you know, in this particular instance with 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 uh, Black Sabbath, they the the audience chanted "Kiss" repeatedly through the entire twenty minute half hour set change, <laughs> and right through the first ten or fifteen minutes of the Black Sabbath set. You know, <laughs> so so Black Sabbath weren't too thrilled with that and. We hung around, you know, to watch the show because, let's face it, you know, being younger than them and, you know, we, we were fans of theirs and it was really thrilling to be on the same bill with them. So we wanted to watch the show. And after after Black Sabbath came on stage, Ozzy actually came back to the dressing room and he shook each and every person's hand in that dressing room from band to crew and very sincerely said, hey, man, you guys were great tonight. Anytime the headline act can't hold their audience he says the opening act must be phenomenal and he says and you guys are phenomenal and and he thanked us and and he gave us that that accolade and then uh two shows two shows later we were two shows later we were off the tour <laughs> <laughs> so, so 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 that, that that's what happened but um you know for every band that didn't want us to open up you know, for them or be special guests or appear anywhere near them. Uh, there was the, there were the promoters who realized that Kiss was in a lot of instances selling more tickets than the headline act. And, um, of course, they fought to have Kiss on the show. And, 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 and the smart acts, uh, which happens sometimes with Blue Oyster Cult and things like that, the smart acts realizing that they couldn't follow Kiss even though their name was higher on the bill and in bigger letters, mm -hmm. the smart acts allowed themselves to perform before Kiss. Aha, uh -huh, yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So they didn't have to deal with any of that uh, <laughs> distraction during their show. And it's in part because of that that Kiss, like I say, ascended you know, so quickly and were able to headline their own shows as rapidly as they did without a hit record. Mm-hmm. And you said a good phrase there when you said uh, that people fought for Kiss to be on on their shows. And of course, for the listeners that may not be aware, I mean, the crew, they fought for Kiss. You guys put your body on the line for Kiss sometimes, you know, it, it oh, came down yeah. to the line, didn't it? Yeah, ab absolutely. You know, it's, it, it, when you're on the road, you know, the, the traveling entourage, it's really, you know, the entourage against the world. You know, you're in a, in a city, and, and, and in the case of, of a lot of bands, English bands in particular, when they're in the States, they're, they're, they're in a totally foreign land. You know, for Kiss, you know, when we were in, 
in in the southern part of the United States, you know, that may as well have been a foreign land. <laughs> there are these guys, uh, you know, um, the audience running around in 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 jeans and coveralls and you know, very much into a rural vibe, and in walks these guys, you know, six feet tall and and more in platforms wearing leathers and you know just <laughs> outrageous makeup and things like that and. You know, a lot of the locals didn't take too kindly to Kiss, um, you know, until they saw the stage show, after which point they immediately became fans. But, you know, we had to literally, um, you know, fight our way in and out of some of the venues just because of the fact that people didn't like the way that they looked. Yeah. And they were from a, they were from a different part of the country and... You know, it it, it became it became a, a a battle pretty much and you know, um there's a there's a, a very famous story of uh of, of KISS when they opened up for uh for Argent uh back in uh back in, in, in those days. Um we were not friendly with Argent at all. And um it, while it never came to blows, um we did have to uh uh, honestly, we did have to push some people around who tried to push us around, but uh, we would not have it. And um, in short order, it became known on the touring circuit that you didn't screw with the Kiss guys <laughs> because they were not, I mean, we were just not having it. You know, we were very nice guys, you know, uh, big guys. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a big guy. I'm almost 6'3", six, six, and I was, you know, a, a tight and toned two and a quarter back then. Uh, Moose, Moose had been uh, a wrestler in in school and 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 whatnot. He was he was also six three. He was two seventy five, uh, very much in shape. Uh, and we had guys, our sound man uh, Jay Barth, Hot Sam. I think he was probably six five, you know. And 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 we just had the attitude that come hella high water, the show would go on and no one would stand in the way of that, you know. So. Uh, while we weren't bullies, uh, we didn't take being bullied either. And uh, that word got around. And it's funny because some groups, uh, I mentioned uh, 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 Black Oak, Arkansas, they were one of those groups. They were out of uh, Arkansas, which was, which is in uh, you know the south central part of the United States. And it's very, very rural vibe. And you know, um, they were easygoing guys, I guess, but they were used to headlining their own shows and calling their own shots and getting their own way. Mm-hmm. Well, as soon as we came on the scene and we had all of this, this you know, massive amount of equipment and we needed a certain amount of stage space to set up this levitating drum riser and there needed to be a certain amount of room behind the amps so that we could have our our fog machines, you know, heating up hot water in the back, and it was a, it was a, it was a, a production the likes of which hadn't been seen at the time, and the headline acts were really reluctant to give up all of this amount of stage space to a group that they'd never seen before. Yeah, and um, we very uh, politely but firmly made those acts know that we this is what we needed and this is what we were going to have, you know, and 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 we got that. And um, after seeing the band a few times, and like I say, having the promoters realize, you know, what the uh, what the ticket selling ability uh, that Kiss had, um, and they didn't want to lose that, um, they stood behind us a lot. But 
but uh, uh, um, Black Oak, Arkansas, they they combated um, our bulk very quickly, and that the next time we work with them, they hired a guy that was bigger than both Moose and I, <laughs> you know, and uh, you know, and and he was hired. I'm sure they told him, listen, you know, we're going to be working with these guys, and we don't want you to take any crap from them. And he was not the friendliest guy out there, you know. We were all very friendly guys, and we got along with 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 a lot of bands famously. We were very tight with Rush, you know, they were great guys. Um, we were very tight with Manfred Mann's Earth Band and English Band. You know, because th they didn't push back on us, you know. And if they didn't push back on us, we had no reason. We weren't, we weren't like I say, we weren't bullies. Mm -hmm. But if you pushed us, you know, you got pushed back harder. Yeah. And, and people really understood that. And, <laughs> and I'm sure that Dave, when he was hired, his name was Little Dave. And he was bigger, like I say, than Moose and I. And, <laughs> and he was not. He never cracked a smile. He was there to do a job. And, um, you know. Nothing ever ever came to blows because even though they hired him to serve, you know, to 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 for a certain purpose, uh, here again there was only so much that they could do because by that time the promoters were on our side, yeah, and they couldn't they couldn't lose, you know, the ticket, uh, the the ticket draw that that that, that Kiss got, and after a while it it went from being physical to well, listen, Mr. Promoter, if we don't get we what we want, we're not going to perform. You know, so you need to talk to the the headline act and and straighten this out before this gets ugly, and that's usually what happened. You know, and as the group rose in stature, uh, so we, we we never really had to uh, to to uh, to bully anybody that that, that didn't try to bully us first. You know what I mean? Oh yeah, that's great that you got the groups back like that, and it was it sounds like a, a good family atmosphere that you got going back at that time. You must have got to know the group like on a personal basis then, each individual member. I, absolutely, absolutely. Like I say, you know, we were we were together all of the time, mm -hmm. all of the time, and and I mean, we didn't go anywhere without each other. Before um, they started to make a little more money and they could hire, you know, some some security guys. You know, we were the crew was their security. You know, if they, if they wanted to go to a club in the deep south or anywhere else that they weren't known. Looking the way they did, they dare not walk into <laughs> any of those 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 uh, you know country type uh, uh, venues, you know themselves. They weren't tough guys, you know. Peter had been a gang member and and he was a scrappy guy, but he was he was a little guy. He was the littlest guy in the group, you know. Gene, being the biggest, was nowhere near the type of a guy that would you know would would fare well in, in any type <laughs> of all. Altercation, and neither was neither was was uh, was was Peter or was Paul Arace for that matter. You know what I mean? Yeah. So we all stuck very closely to each other. We were all very tight knit. We all grew up in New York City, so we there we had had an affinity for each other. You know, we were we were basically you know the same guys in different bodies. And uh, like I say, when there's only nine of you and you're a thousand miles away from home, and you stick out like a sore thumb. <laughs> you know, uh, there's there's strength in numbers, and 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 we did become we did become a family. Yeah, it must have made things a little bit difficult as well. You know, with the whole thing back then of keeping their identities secret. I mean, luckily, you know, it's it's not like it is now with the internet and you know everybody's got a smartphone with a camera on. But it's it still must have made life a bit harder than normal for you. 
For sure. It was, it, it, it was difficult. But here again, you know, with with the size of the guys that we had around, myself and Moose and, and you know, some of the other guys, you know, it was... Uh, it was it was very it was very much easier yeah. to quote unquote convince <laughs> uh, a fan <laughs> to uh, you know to, to to give up the role of film in that camera you know, um, than it is now when you're dealing with professional paparazzi whose sole jobs that you know they make thousands and thousands of dollars on on candid photos that no one has, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so it, it was very easy back in those days to uh, approach someone very politely and say, listen, you know, no pictures allowed and can we have your film? And uh, usually they gave up the film willingly. If they did, we'd, we'd pay them for the film and give them their camera back. But if anybody got loud with us, it, was, it wasn't unusual to grab them by the neck, rip the camera off of, <laughs> off of their shoulders, and smash it into the ground, and the, the the film would be exposed to the light. And there, now try to develop that. You know, <laughs> you know what I mean. Uh, so once that rumor got around, uh, or that reality got around, um, we had uh, no problems with that as well. And I'm very proud to say that here again, you know, no one ever threatened the band during our our tenure with the band, uh, and no one got any pictures of the band without makeup. Uh, while we were around as well, many tried, nobody <laughs> succeeded, That's and um, yeah, you know, we're, we're very, very proud of that. You know, oh, we yeah. we 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 serve those guys on so many levels. It was it was a very gratifying thing, and you know, to be honest, um, you know, the book is not all. I don't know. Have you finished reading the book yet? No, I haven't yet. No, I'm still I'm still plowing through it and loving it. You know, it's one of those books, and I'm I'm not saying this just to blow smoke because you're on the show with me. It's one of mm-hmm. those books that. You you want to read, you don't want to put it down, but you don't want to finish it because <laughs> once you've finished it, it's finished, you know. And, oh, yeah. yeah. So yeah, yeah. I, I'm I'm savoring it like a fine wine at the moment. Well, well, I I, I won't uh, I, I won't spoil it for you, but let's just say that uh, the way that it ended uh, for the crew is not the way that we would have written it mm-hmm. uh, had we uh, been in a position to do so. Uh, but we gave our all to the band. And um, you will see for yourself how it ended, but it, it did not end uh, in, as 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 we would have hoped. You know, we thought that we were helping them to build something. Uh, we never knew that it was going to last uh, uh, 40 years, but uh, we thought that we were part of the family because certainly we put our lives on the line, you know, m- more than once. Mm-hmm. And uh, we thought that we had proven ourselves, and, and we thought that we had uh, endeared ourselves to, to the band. Um, and uh, as you will read, uh, as certain entities entered the picture, um, the, the aura surrounding the band changed, and uh, the, the people behind the scenes changed. And in, in doing so, they wanted to... Uh, to maintain a firm grip on the band, and they, in they they felt that uh, that to do that they needed to separate the band from those who they knew best, yeah. um, and 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 fill those roles with people of their own choosing, so that they could uh, uh, you know call the shots in their own way. We never got a chance to uh, to 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 work for the for the new uh, people that came on board. 
Um, and that was a bit, uh, not a bit, it was very disappointing. But, um, you know, that's all I'll say about that. And, and, and you read it for yourself. And hopefully some of your listeners will, uh, you know, feel uh, good enough uh, after listening to this interview to go out and, you know, purchase the book. The book is available on, uh, on Amazon and on eBay. Although I must admit, I've, I've gotten some feedback from some fans uh, in Europe that it's not as difficult or it's not as easy to purchase on eBay or Amazon as it is to purchase on our, our website, which is... Uh, www.theoriginalkisscrew.com and that's crew with a K mm-hmm. www.theoriginalkisscrew.com and there's all sorts of fun stuff on there there are uh, uh, interviews and other podcasts on the like uh, from uh, from other uh, uh, other situations none of course as stellar as yours <laughs> <laughs> But, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of good stuff on the site, and we do have a, a very thriving Facebook page, I'm proud to say, the original KISS crew. Uh, we've added uh, over 5,000 members in six months to, uh, to that page, and we're very, very proud of that. And there's a lot of good stuff going on there, a lot of, uh, a lot of very knowledgeable uh, uh, people um, not only from the fan side, but you know some of the people who produced some some of the Kiss stuff that we know, some of the photographers that the fans may know, uh, you know, and they post some some never before seen pictures, and it's always a very spirited discussion, you know. So anyone that's interested, you know, join us on on our Facebook page, the Original Kiss Crew, and um, I'm sure you will be more than entertained. Oh, I can second that too. And what I'll do is I'll put the links to everything you've just said, JR, into the podcast notes so people can just go straight to them as well. Perfect. Perfect, man. I appreciate that. So how did how did the book come about then? What what was the, you know, the the genesis of Out on the Streets? Well, the the book came about uh for two reasons. First and foremost, I think it's it's the uh fans, you know, um the fans that uh that uh, knew about uh, the contributions that the original crew made and appreciate that and, you know, that they just wanted to know a lot of the behind-the-scenes stuff and, and, you know, the day-to-day chores and tasks that, that, that led up to uh, uh, surrounding a, uh, a, Kiss, uh, a Kiss concert. Um, they wanted to know, you know, why we were no longer working with the band you know something that I kind of uh, touched on uh, just now, and uh, and honestly, uh, for for us it was just getting you know getting all of that stuff off of our shoulders and being able to uh, to shed some light and answer those questions. You know why why we're not no why we were no longer with the band and the events that led up to that. You know it it was it was stifling us for decades. And, uh, you know, we said, you know, guess what? I mean, this is time. We're asked about this too often. And, um, you know, rather than continually uh, answer that same question for individuals, you know, mm-hmm. let, let's let's write this book and let's get it out there. And, and we wrote the book and, and, you know, thank you for your review. Um, you probably uh, would agree that, uh, you know, we wrote the book from the standpoint of four guys who became brothers. Yeah based on the uh, the trials and tribulations that we went through helping to uh, to build a supergroup you know and and 
just you know just like sitting around having a beer chatting and and, and reminiscing about some of the memories that that, that we hold uh, you know dear to us that's that's the way that we wrote the book and and that's the way that uh, uh, that we wanted it to to come across you know anyone that's looking for a constant diatribe and you know uh, you know backstabbing which I you know, a lot of the, the, the books that I've seen come out, written by some of the band members themselves, they do nothing but trash other members of the band. This is not that kind of book. This is, you know, we literally, and it might sound corny, but we love those guys. We love them, man. We put our lives on the line from them, for them like I say, on, on, on more than one occasion. And, uh, you know, no one would have put up with, uh, you know, the obstacles that, that we willingly faced and overcame you know in an effort to get the show out you know and and we're proud of that and we're proud of being able to share that with the fans who appreciate uh, that especially the fans from the very early days you know so thanks to the fans for for pushing us uh, you know to get that done as well oh, yeah. and i love the way that the book set out as well you know that the whole structure of it is just mm. it just makes for such great great reading it just immerses you in, into the story and into the life of what it was like back then. <laughs> well, th- thank you for that. You know, we can't uh, we can't please all of the people all of the time. <laughs> we we have heard one or two comments. Uh, uh, you know, some, as a matter of fact, from from uh, uh, one in particular from another podcast that shall remain nameless. <laughs> but uh, this particular group, uh, they they didn't appreciate the you know uh, many things in the book. <laughs> But uh, but when we when we were able to to sit and talk with them calmly and explain some of the <coughs> excuse me some of the the things that were going on that they missed, I think that uh, they're slowly becoming uh, over to our side now and realizing you know what what, what they have you know it's funny but uh, you know everyone has a different expectation of what they're going to get when they go to see a movie or read a book or whatever. And, um, you know, you don't always, uh, uh, you know, those expectations aren't always met, re- you know, right, wrong or indifferent. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But yeah. I, I think that uh, that uh, somewhere in there, um, um, a logical person will sit back and, and say, well, you know what? This isn't really what I expected. But, you know, Jesus, man, these guys, they did do everything that they set out to do. And the proof is in the pudding, and and that proof is uh, you know a legacy now that spans four decades. And oh, yeah. like I say, we're we're very very proud of that. Oh yeah, it's you know it's so great that you're such you know an integral part of uh, of Kiss, the Kiss story in general. You know people yeah. can't people can't think of the history of Kiss and not think of you guys. That's for sure. Yeah, you're yeah, a massive man. part of it. And what about another <laughs> what about another book from you then, Jr. I mean, because you went on, you know, you might have finished with Kiss, but then you went on to work with the likes of Aerosmith as well to, to begin with. Yeah, yeah, I, I worked with a lot of bands after. And you know, life life's been good. Uh, I, I I can't complain. After leaving uh, Kiss, I did work briefly with some of their label mates, a group called Angel. Uh, and Angel was a great band, infinitely more talented on their individual instruments uh, than Kiss were. And I still am not sure why they didn't uh, make it to the same level. But, uh, you know, I saw in, in Angel the same potential that I saw in Kiss. Uh, that was not to be, but, uh, you know, so be it. You know, uh, and you mentioned I did go on 
there was a, a major management company at the time here in New York City called uh, Lieber Krebs Management. Uh, Steve Lieber and David David Krebs. And by the time I left Kiss, they were really the probably the excuse me biggest managers of of hard rock acts at the time. Uh, they also produced a little show on Broadway called Beatlemania. Um, I don't know how many people may f- be familiar with that. That's ancient history, but mm. it was it was a musical version of uh, of the the making of and the success around the Beatles. And they they put together four lookalike guys who sounded uh, amazingly like the Beatles, and they they put a show on Broadway that lasted a few years and then and then had a very strong touring life around the country um and that was very well received but at the time uh you know yes i did i did work with aerosmith who was the Lieber krebs act i i worked with uh, worked with ted nugent uh i worked with uh with uh, golden earring who uh, you know Lieber krebs was the was the u.s manager for they also were the U.S. representatives for ACDC at the time. Mm-hmm. They, they did manage Scorpions. You know, and with all of those acts, they were one of the first management companies to put on their first predominantly uh, um, stadium events consisting mostly of their own acts. Um, if anyone cares to look up there, there was something called the California Jam, um, back in, I believe, this, the first year was 78, if I'm not mistaken. And the majority of the bands that I mentioned just now, you know, uh, were the major draws, um, you know, for, for that event and subsequent events of the type. So they pioneered a lot of what was going on in the business. They also managed uh, George Clinton, Parliament Funkadelic, who I worked for, um, Bootsy, Bootsy's Rubber Band, um, you know, some very funky guys that are about as far away from uh, from Kiss type music as as you can get. <laughs> but um, their stage show and their costumes were equal equally outlandish, you know what I mean. So oh, they yeah. had they had their own thing going for them. And then after that, you know, uh, disco music uh, became very popular, and I got I got paid quite well to work with uh, you know uh, artists like Evelyn Champagne King. They had a very big uh, hit in the early days of disco a song called shame uh then there was uh cheryl lynn who also was was very big um fortunate enough to work for dr john fortunate enough to work for uh for uh michael jackson and the jacksons i worked with uh with cameo um midnight star atlantic star um, I managed Harry Belafonte's company for a while, and most people won't know who Harry Belafonte is, but Harry was a major star in, uh, in the late 50s, and he introduced Calypso music to the world. Mm-hmm. So Harry was like, uh, Harry was to Calypso what Bob Marley was to, uh, to reggae. Oh yeah, yeah Harry, Harry. Harry was a big star. I remember Harry, Harry Belafonte. Yeah, yeah, he was he was a huge star. I managed his company for over a year, and was very heavily involved with his uh, his touring operation and his his merchandising. Um, you know, so so the, the, there's a lot of stuff. I was fortunate enough to work for Ray Charles, um, and then I started uh, promoting concerts myself. I promoted some shows uh, in the Cayman Islands. Uh, who, which was a very, very popular 
tourist uh, destination at the time, uh, promoted uh, one of a uh, major act at the time was uh, an English act, uh, Maxi Priest, um, uh, Third World, which was a big uh, Jamaican reggae group at the time. And, uh, you know, it, it, it was a wonderful thing. And, and one of the highlights, um, Harry was for sure the best tour that I ever worked on because he was treated like royalty everywhere that we went. He was a UN uh, diplomat. He had a red UN diplomat passport, you know, and in Europe in particular, he was treated like royalty. You know, we, we never saw the inside of an airport. You know, when I tell you that, that customs officials came onto the plane to stamp <laughs> our passports, <laughs> you know, I mean, it, it, it was just no better than that. You know what I mean? Um, and the same, the same kind of thing working with, with the Jacksons. You know, their tour at the time was the biggest tour. You know, it was bigger than Kiss's tour. So I, I certainly couldn't feel bad about working for them. But um, I did allow myself uh, to work, uh, do, do a show with uh, Pope Benedict XVI uh, <laughs> in 2008. And although it wasn't financially as financially rewarding, as a lot of the other things that I did, I did it simply because I wanted to have on my resume that I worked for the demon in Gene Simmons and I worked for the Pope. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I worked with them both very closely. I was the stage manager and talent coordinator for the Pope um, when he came to uh, the States in 2008, Pope Benedict. And they had something, uh, still do have something called the Papal Youth Rally. Yeah. And what that is is an outdoor concert, and uh, he did this one in the, in the New York City area. And we, we, we built a stage, a huge stage, on the grounds of a, of a large uh, Catholic seminary in uh, north of New York City. And we had 35,000 of, of you know, Catholic youth wow. come out. out yeah, and, and we had 108 uh, uh, bishops. Uh, from all around the country, and, and all at the time, I think there were 17 or 18 cardinals in the country from various uh, uh, dioceses, and we had all of them, and, and with that, we had nonstop music, 23 different bands from 11 a.m. until uh, till 6 p.m. Uh, that, that evening, and uh, our headliner if you will, was Pope Benedict XVI. <laughs> and he gave his homily, and, and everything went off with, without a hitch, and I was very, very proud to be a part of that. So, yeah, my, my career, um, I'm fortunate enough to say that it, it spanned uh, a, a lot of decades, a lot of genres of music, and, uh, you know, it's been a great ride. I, I, I couldn't have hoped for anything more. Well, I could have hoped for it, but I, I couldn't have demanded it. You know? <laughs> Well, you, you just whetted my appetite right there, JR, for another book with all these like post-kiss stories. Any plans for that, do you think? You know, I've, at some point in time, there may be. Um, honestly, we would like to maybe do another kiss book because there are so many untold stories. You know, this, the, the, the book that you have and the book that's available, which, by the way, I don't think I even mentioned the title of it yet. The title of the book is Out on the Streets. Subtitled, The True Tales of Life on the Road with the Hottest Band in the Land, Kiss. <laughs> any, any Kiss fan that might be listening will recognize Out on the Streets as being the, uh, the first words and the lyrics to uh, 
to a song that Peter Chris sang and ended the show, uh, a song called Black Diamond. Mm -hmm. And um, you'll see how the title plays into um, uh, our story as you approach the end of the book. And it's kind of ironical, but... Uh, <laughs> Uh, you know, it, 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 it's, it, it's there for, there for a purpose, you know what I mean? But, uh, yeah, we do have, uh, much, much more, uh, that we could say and, 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 and share with the, with the fans. Um, the book as you have it now is 347 pages and I'm sure we've got at least another 347 pages. So let's see what the future holds. And, uh, if the fans demand it, then certainly there, there's room for another one. And, who knows, maybe a J.R. Smalling book as well. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm demanding both right now. I'm getting word in early. <laughs> there you go. There you go. <laughs> well, thank you. Keep, obviously, keep in touch. Um, whatever we can do over here in the UK uh, to promote whatever you're doing, J.R., we'll happily do it. Mm. Uh, mm -hmm. Sure. Sure. Thank you so much for coming on today. I've just been sat here enthralled, as I'm sure all the listeners have as well. So it's been an absolute pleasure listening to the stories that you've uh, that you've told everybody today. Great, great. Well, listen, thank you for the opportunity. I certainly do appreciate it. Thanks again to the fans for caring um, enough to uh, to uh, uh, give us the, uh, the the nudge, so to speak, to, to to finally sit down these many years later and and write this book. We 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 really wrote it for you guys, and and and, and thanks so much, man. Um, stay tuned. There's there's more to come. That's great. Well, I look forward to talking to you uh, when the next book comes out. Absolutely, and uh, look forward to seeing you uh, participating on our Facebook page as well. Will do, most definitely. All right. Okay, man. Thanks, Jay. Have a great one. You too, man. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. And there we are at the end of another episode. And uh, if you enjoyed it half as much as I did recording it, then you've definitely had a damn good time. I'd also like to take this opportunity to point out to uh, any KISS fans out there, if you're not already aware, of a great podcast. Uh, it's been going, I, th I believe, 2015 is its eighth year, and that's Podkissed. Uh, it's one I've been subscribed to for about three and a half to four years now. Thoroughly recommended. They've also had an episode with J.R. Smalling, so you can get some more stories from J.R. on that. Uh, if you subscribe to Podkissed, you also get the added benefit of getting the Kiss Room once a month as well with the great Matt Porter. So uh, there's my recommendation for all you Kiss fans out there. Get subscribed to Podkissed. Uh, also make sure you visit the original Kiss crew, the website, um, by the book. I'm about halfway through it now at time of editing and um, still thoroughly recommended to everybody. Uh, follow JR, uh, follow what he does. Hopefully he's going to have another book or two books out soon. Uh, of course, I'll let you know as soon as any news comes through about that. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at 60 Minutes With. You can also like on Facebook, facebook.com slash 60 Minutes With. Uh, iTunes reviews and ratings greatly received. Uh, I'll be back again very soon. I've got some interview shows uh, lined up, just waiting for dates to be sorted. And of course, we've got the regular uh, entertainment shows with Chris and Ramrod. So, thank you for listening, stay subscribed, and I look forward to uh, chatting very, very soon.